Thank you, Princetta. Thanks be to God for that word, eh? <laughs> um, the youth, you can go out, you're going out. Um, I really appreciate Ben taking the Sunday off so I could preach on this first. Um, have any of you guys been found out in a really embarrassing way? Um, I once heard of a family who had some visitors over for dinner and the mum and dad wanted to show off how well they'd raised their children and just how well their children prayed. So when it came to lunch, they said to their son, Johnny, why don't you pray? And Johnny looked rather embarrassed and said, I can't. So the mother just whispered, Johnny, it's okay. Just say what daddy said at breakfast. So, So Johnny shuts his eyes. He closes his, he bows his head, closes his hands and says, oh God, why do we have to have those awful people over for dinner today? <laughs> Speaking of children, I um, was a very, very sensitive kid. Does anybody remember Disney's film The Love Bug uh, or Herbie? Well, basically, if you don't know it, it's a Disney film about a car that was alive. Um, and I was that sensitive. I used to cry every time the car got into trouble. Um, and I was about four or five. I wasn't a teenager. Um, but back then, when I was growing up, it was, it was actually a different time. It was a time when big boys don't cry. It was a time where you had to develop a thick skin. Um, and I can remember my mum my particularly being really concerned about me going to school because she thought that I'd get picked on um, because I cried so much. Um, the problem is that this led me to feel ashamed to be sensitive. Um, I learned to suppress my emotions. I suppressed my emotions. It's funny now. It's not funny back then. But I, um, I learned to suppress my emotions that much that I used to get migraines any time that something fun or exciting would happen, whether it was birthdays, Easter. I remember getting 14 Easter eggs one year, and I was so excited I had a migraine. And uh, holidays. I went to Ibiza when I was 18. Had a, had a um, migraine on the way to the airport and got searched at security because I looked so ill. Um, the problem is a lot of us can carry this feeling of shame. And a lot of it is because of experiences from our past and stuff that isn't actually our fault. Um, And just to be clear, guilt is about something you've done, as where shame is about who you are. Um, Shame is about how we feel about ourselves and how we think about ourselves. Um, I just also want to acknowledge at the start that my experience of shame, in the context of some people, is quite low level. Some people have experienced or experienced shame because of things that have happened in their past, and it's devastating. But I think that we can all say, see that a little bit of shame can have quite a devastating effect on our lives. Um, if you've been here over the past month, you'll know, um, as Ben said, that we've been going through the early passages of the book of Acts. Um, and again, well done to Princetta for reading that passage. Um, The standard interpretation of this chapter uh, in Acts chapter 5 is that the people in the early church were selling what they had and they gave to those in need. A couple named Ananias and Sapphira decided to deceive the church leaders, the apostles, by withholding part of the money that they'd received for selling some property. They wanted a reputation of being generous without actually being fully generous. The passage tells us that this deceit gives the devil a foothold in their lives and they lie to the Holy Spirit, which is revealed supernaturally to Peter and the judgment of God falls on them as a result. And everybody in in the church is understandably terrified when they die. The normal application of this passage is this, that we Christians need to be people of integrity, otherwise God will judge us in the same way and that we may not die instantly, but we will die and because God is a God of holiness, 
We mustn't presume on his grace and we should live in the fear of the Lord. However, I need you to understand that I am substantially unconvinced by this standard interpretation, especially anything that invokes a fearful response. Because God is love, and the Bible tells us that perfect love casts out fear. It doesn't invoke it. It is important that when we read scripture, we read it in the context of the Bible message as a whole. We need to read these passages within the framework that God is love, and he loved us so much that he sent his son, Jesus, to lead us back into a loving relationship with him. And our best attempts to understand who God is should always be based on the person of Jesus. And because I am unconvinced by the standard interpretation, I'm going to give you this one instead. That at this time, empowered by the Holy Spirit, the the apostles were turning the world upside down and establishing the new kingdom of God. Ben has previously spoken about how the kingdom of God, like in Genesis with the story of the Garden of Eden, wasn't to be restricted to one area of land, but was to be expanded out to the rest of the world. In Acts 1, the disciples are told by Jesus to remain in Jerusalem until they receive a gift, which is the Holy Spirit and power, so they can be faithful witnesses to Jesus and his kingdom. The the disciples obediently wait in Jerusalem, wondering when this power is going to turn up, and that's when, in previous weeks, we've talked about Pentecost. The disciples are gathered together in a house, and then suddenly it's filled with rushing of wind and something like fire, and it says the fire splintered off and hovered like um, tongues of fire over their heads. It is here that Luke, the uh, the writer of Acts, is tapping into a reoccurring Old Testament theme. Though in the Old Testament, when God turns up, whether it's the burning bush with Moses or in the tabernacle, there's a fire, a pillar of fire, things like that, it's manifested as fire. Luke is making a point here that the tongues of fire is God's personal temple presence, his Holy Spirit coming to take up residence in the new temple of Jesus Christ, which is us, his people. We become Jesus' little mobile temples where God's Holy Spirit dwells. Luke is telling the story of two temples. The old temple in the Old Testament, which is the physical building in Jerusalem where people would gather together and to worship, and the new temple, which is Jesus' body, which consists of people. These temples would meet together in, in each other's houses throughout the city and were approaching life in a radical new way. And this is where we see people doing stuff like selling their property, giving to those in need, and meeting together to say their daily prayers, and uh, eating together, and learning from the apostles about what it is to live with Jesus as this new king of the world. Today's passage is where we learn that it wasn't all fun and games being the temple of God. In 1 Samuel in the Old Testament, there's a story of two priests who dishonor God in the temple, and then they die which is where Luke here includes a similar story of Ananias and Sapphira, who dishonor and are actively deceiving God and his people and suffer a similar fate. However, we all know that we have all sinned and we've all fallen short of God's standard. And, but the thing is now is that's why Jesus came. He came to make a way for us to have a relationship with a perfect God, even though we ourselves are imperfect. And when we read the text, we wrestled with this all week, this text, trying to get something out of it. And I think it's really important that we read what it actually says. It doesn't say God killed Ananias and Sapphira. It says that they died. 
I don't believe that God smited them. This is important because the context for the first century church is that people existed in a shame and honor-based culture. I'm not going to go over it now, but there's a story in Luke 15, a very famous story of the lost son or the prodigal son. And what's amazing about this story is that the the son, when he leaves the, the family home, he shames the family. He should have been killed by the community when he tried to come back home. But the father's love was so great for the son, he ran to the son And the father's love covered that son from the punishment that shame should have brought. I'm just going to repeat that. The father's love was more powerful than shame and anything his son had done. And I think today we still feel humiliation and shame. But back then it would have been a hundred times worse because they existed within this shame and honor-based culture. So why did Ananias and Sapphira die when they got found out? The truth is nobody actually knows. I think it is worth remembering that when Luke is writing the book of Acts, it's narrative part of scripture, which is his account of what happened. It's not necessarily his teaching on what should happen. And at this time, the presence of the Holy Spirit, when I was reading this, was so intense, so hot, if you like, that revival was breaking out in in many, many ways. 3,000 people joined the church in one day. There's a a guy with disabilities who gets instantly healed. as I said, people loving each other so much, they were selling what they had to give to those in need. There was an intensity at the presence of the Holy Spirit that actually changed the course of human history. When we have Anna, and then we have Ananias and Sapphira. And some commentators would suggest the issue here is that they weren't actually Christians. And they got into trouble by entering into the presence of God with the intention to deceive, to divert the praise away from the amazing thing God was doing onto themselves and they ended up as collateral damage. But again, don't we all do this from time to time? Aren't we all sinners? Aren't we all hypocrites? Um, the answer to that is yes. <laughs> but the difference is that we are, we're covered by grace and forgiveness when you know who Jesus is. The difference is that when Jesus is living inside of us, we're able to approach this holy God as a loving father only because of what Jesus did. Jesus is effectively your sunscreen that you can actually get closer to the heat. The sun isn't necessarily bad by nature. It's actually the source of all life and life on this planet wouldn't, would cease to exist without it. We can only enter the presence of God and truly know him as a loving father through Jesus and because of what Jesus did when he died for us. And we can now approach this holy, hot presence of God in full confidence that we won't die, so don't worry, that we are utterly loved and worthy to be in a relationship with him. But that is only possible through Jesus. What killed Ananias and Sapphira was the specific intensity of the presence of God at that time in the church. And they didn't know Jesus. They tried to get their affirmation from people and they wanted to use God to do this, abusing his holiness and the shame of being found out in this context would have been deadly to them. There's a pastor of a church in America called Bill Johnson, and he says it like this. It's not smart to use anything as powerful as an invitation into the presence of God for any other purpose other than relationship. So what does this mean if you, don't, if you probably don't even know Jesus yet? Well, none of you are pretending to be Christians to start with. None of you are you know, trying to get into the presence of God for purposes other than exploring him. So I just let, just, you'll be okay. It'll be all right. You've got nothing to worry about, trust me. 
And this might disappoint the bloodthirsty people among us, but I don't believe that God killed them. But for my money, God didn't smite them the way he doesn't smite us whenever we sin. My third however, just in case I'm wrong, I have put a giver's card underneath every chair. (laughs) So what has this passage got to do with shame? Shame can best be understood as the fear of disconnection. Is there something about me that if people know it or see it, will render me unworthy of love and connection? Connection is why we are here. It's what gives purpose and meaning to our lives. Connection and the ability to connect is neurologically how we are wired and why we exist. Few things undermine our well-being and connection as much as the feeling of shame. Because of the experience of shame, Ananias and Sophia experienced the greatest separation that we could ever imagine. Many of you may have seen a very famous TED Talk by a researcher and author called Brené Brown, who conducted over six years' worth of research into the area of shame. And taking the results from thousands of interviews, she distilled them down and discovered two distinct people groups. The first group comprised of people who possessed a sense of worthiness, and this group had a strong sense of love and belonging. The second group were the group who struggled to feel worthy, always wondering if they would ever be good enough. There's only one variable between those who had a strong sense of love and belonging and the people who struggled for it. And that was the people who had a strong sense of love and belonging believed that they were worthy of love and belonging. That's it. They believed that they were worthy. The one thing that keeps us from connection is the fear that we are not truly worthy of connection. The fear that when people see the real me, that this will keep us from connection, results in loneliness and isolation, which can lead to feelings of worthlessness, which perpetuates this whole shame cycle. Brenny Brown then looked into themes and patterns uh, which contributed to the first group. Um, And she noticed that those who believed that they were worthy of love and belonging, also possessed a sense of courage. And I'm just going to distinguish this from bravery for this talk. Courage is from the Latin word of core, which means your heart. And the original definition was this, to tell the story of who you are or were with your whole heart. It's the courage to be imperfect. It's vital that we have compassion for ourselves first and then to others. Because as it turns out, we can't practice compassion to other people if we can't be first kind to ourselves. In Matthew chapter 22, Jesus is asked, what is the meaning to life? Or in the Jewish context and language of the day, was said, teacher, what is the greatest commandment? And Jesus replied this, love the Lord your God with all your heart, all your mind and all your soul. This is the first and greatest commandment. The second is equal to it. Love your neighbors as you love yourself. All of the law, all of this stuff hangs on these two commandments. The purpose of life is to love God, love your neighbors, and to love yourself. Another element that those with a sense of love and belonging possessed 
is the ability to really connect with other people. And this is the really hard bit. This was the hard bit for me. The ability to connect is the result of being authentically ourselves. Being willing to let go of who we think we should be in order to be who we actually are. That is essential for true connection. The other thing we need to do is to fully embrace vulnerability. Vulnerability is the opposite to shame. Shame hides, vulnerability is on show. This is who I am. Because what makes you vulnerable also makes you beautiful. He's not here today, but if you get John Kyle to talk about his kids, um, he, his eyes glaze over. Um, and in that moment, he's vulnerable. But I don't think there's anything more beautiful than a dad loving his children that much. What makes you vulnerable makes you beautiful. My sensitivity as a, as a kid was actually who God intended me to be. But shame had trapped me and robbed me from being able to truly connect to other people and to God. This led to a belief that I think many of us can, can have in our minds, which is that being vulnerable is being weak. Shame causes us to hide who we really are. And for me, when it came to dating, I believed the lie that women don't want weak men. So don't show any vulnerability. So I hid who I really was. When Sarah and I were dating, I remember once opening up to her about something, I don't think it was a big deal, but it was like some small emotion. And she'll tell you that I went on emotional lockdown for three days because I, I was so scared of showing who I really was. Just to be clear, I wasn't like an alpha male, I wasn't dominant, but what it meant was that I hid who I really was. My emotions made me feel ashamed. And those emotions created a barrier to people I really wanted to connect with. And it also made me feel like, and I think no, a lot of people feel like this, that I never actually fitted in, that I was always on the fringe, that I was actually quite alone. However, fortunately for us, God is in the business of fixing broken things, resetting what was wrong and helping us to live free from our past. So what is vulnerability? Vulnerability is to be able to say, I love you first. It's the willingness to do something when there's no guarantees. It's the willingness to invest in a relationship that may or may not work out. It's the willingness to say, I need help and I'm struggling. It's the willingness to acknowledge that in our imperfections that we need other people. It's the willingness to trust people. I've got a friend who constantly says, I can't trust people, I can't trust people. And I see that he isolates himself all the time. He's so scared of what people see and he pushes people away. Some of you are going to think this sounds extremely dangerous, Chris. Because we like to control and we like to predict everything because we want to mitigate any risk or danger to ourselves. And then here am I telling you that you need to be vulnerable. And you're thinking, no way. We're here, we have an issue. Because the part of ourself where fear and, and worthlessness and shame sits is also the birthplace of love and joy and belonging. And as someone who struggled with vulnerability, I needed help with this. I remember going to a church. Um, it was a, the service was a bit like this morning, but it was in an evening, and there's a lot, lot of people and lights and stuff. But everybody was there with their hands raised, and they were really singing 
So people were crying, people were getting emotionally involved. And I remember being there, being like this. I just felt numb. I was just like, there's nothing going on. And I remember saying to God, God, like, what, what's this about? Like, why can they connect and I can't? I want to know you like they do too. And God said to me this one simple phrase, your walls are up. My Devon accent might be getting in the way. That your walls are up. And I was like, not to you, God. Like, you're good. I know I can trust you. To other people, they're dangerous to me. But not to you, God. And he just said, Chris, if they're up, they're up. By shutting myself off to other people, I'd also shut myself off to God. And we're made to be connected to God and to people, to love the Lord your God, yourself, and people. But the beauty is, as I started to open myself up to God, he helped me to open myself up to people as well. And my experience of doing this is probably the scariest thing I've ever done in my life. When Sarah and I were dating, I felt God challenge me to, to tell Sarah who I kind of really was. And she said a few times, like, I understand what you've done, I just don't understand why you've done it. Like, she didn't understand the heart behind decisions that I'd made in life. So I, I felt, I kind of argued with God about this for a while because I didn't want to do it, but I felt him say, just tell her everything. So I wrote a letter, and then I attached it to an email. I remember the heading of the email being like, in, you know, asterisks and capital letters being like, do not open this unless you're serious about me. Like, please pray about this. Like, I have never shared this with another human being. And I feel like my, my heart is in your hands, so please don't drop it. Like, it was a horrendously scary thing for me to do. And um, I lived in America at the time. And so um, we'd organized a Skype. And I just I said to um, Sarah, when can we Skype? She said, in two days, which basically was torture for two days. I couldn't sleep. I couldn't eat. I was anticipating this conversation. And we got on Skype, and I remember saying to her, so, Nick, what do you think? And, uh, and Sarah just said, I cried. I cried for two reasons. One is, I cried for what you've been through. And the second is, you could... I cried because you finally let me in. I can finally get to know you. So my question then is, who can we be vulnerable with? We need to start by being vulnerable with God. I think Jesus orders that passage of, love the Lord your God with all your heart, your soul, and your mind. Love your neighbor as you love yourself for a reason. I don't think we can do this before we can do this. And for those struggling to be able to connect to people, struggling for the belief that we are worthy of love and belonging, we need to start by opening ourselves up to God and believing that we are worthy of the love of God and that we belong in his presence. That we are worthy based on his love for us, not on the praises of other people. The only reason I could even open up to Sarah is because I've been opening myself up to God for months beforehand. I was able to say to God, I am really struggling here and I need some help. I feel lonely, I feel disappointed. I don't feel worthy of love, and I want to. That was the thing. I was honest at least to say I really want this. I need to know that I am lovable as your son, and I don't want to perform for love and for affection. In these moments of being truly myself, vulnerable and weak before God, 
I experienced something deep and beautiful and transformative. As I lowered my walls, then God's love came in. This love, this good and pure love of a father who desperately wants to be in a loving relationship with us. He was able to wash away my shame, to renew my mind so I could think differently. And I started to believe that I was worthy of love and belonging and connection and that I was significant in God's eyes. God was able to do this because of Jesus. Because on the cross when Jesus died, he wasn't just raised to life again after, after death. He paid the price for me and you to be free from this stuff. And now that debt of sin is paid, and the song says paid in full, Jesus wants what he paid for. He wants us to live a life free from shame and fear and guilt and disconnection and that feeling that we're not worthy. Because you are worthy of love and connection. And the additional beautiful thing that happened was that once I became secure in the love of God, I became more secure in my relationships with other people. So my last question is, what would it look like if we did this as a community? It looks like being a family where it's okay to not be okay. And I actually think we've got a real shot at doing that here. This week, um, Danny and I and a few guys were talking and Danny's just like, I'm learning so much about relationships and, and life with our sort of staff team just by, by us being real and talking with each other. And it's in a place where Danny gets to be Danny, Chris gets to be Chris, Ben gets to be Ben, Bryn gets to be Bryn. You all get to be yourselves. And in those bonds of love and trust, we get to be seen and we get to be loved and we get to be connected. And we get to grow as a family. You get to be you. Get to be you. But this only happens when we start to be real and vulnerable with God to start with. By not putting on a front or putting on a mask, but by experiencing the unconditional love of a father who runs to us in our shame and who frees us from pain, can take away the pain and the shame of our past and whose love can make us whole and give us hope for a life and a life in its fullness. I think I've been talking long enough. So if you could all stand, if you can, don't worry if you can't. I'm just going to pray.